Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. My friend Liam telephoned from Twickenham recently. They're taking your phone box down, he said. I thought you should know. And why would the removal of a phone box from a London street be of interest to me? Well, over 30 years ago, I revealed to him that every time I passed this phone box, I felt a strong urge to bless myself. Had I witnessed an apparition there, was his droll response. No, I hadn't. But I assured him that something miraculous had occurred there just the same. And I explained that when I landed in London in the early 1970s, I had drifted in and out of jobs in bars and building sites, basically rootless and heading nowhere but I'd always harboured the ambition of becoming a teacher. A friend from home had managed it by availing of a government grant. Back then in England, funding for full-time courses was awarded to eligible candidates. However, due to a shortfall in my tax contributions, my attempts over two years to acquire a grant had been justifiably refused. Hardly Al Capone territory, but enough to deny me just the same. The following year, still not meeting the conditions of the awarding authority, I tried my luck by applying again anyway. But this time, I followed up with monthly letters. And just to be on the safe side, I telephoned every week as well, frequently to the exasperated response of, Oh no, it's that Irish bloke again, will you take it? So, no luck. On my third year of trying... I decided to put the cart before the horse. I applied for and was offered a place in a college, St Mary's, Strawberry Hill. And despite having no money to pay the fees or to support myself, I enrolled on the first day of term. A phone call to the authority on my way home would decide whether or not I'd be returning the next day. So, after registration, I headed for the nearest phone box and fumbling coins into the slot, I offered up a heartfelt prayer. A softly spoken voice on the other end of the line informed me that she had my paperwork in front of her, remarking that it was one of the thickest files she had ever come across. Well, that's hardly surprising, I snapped petulantly. I've been writing to you every month for the last three years. The voice, firmer now, informed me that she had seen grants awarded too many times to people who dropped out after only a month or two. Well, I spluttered, I think that file in front of you tells you I am not one of those. Would I be wasting everybody's time if I was going to drop out? I agree, the voice said. In my astonishment, I swayed backwards, the cast iron and glass framework of the kiosk cool against my damp shirt. I'm sorry, I said, but what did you say? I don't think you are like them, she said, looking at your correspondence, but, she added, you still fall short of the requirements necessary for a bursary. Rejected again. I nearly put the receiver down, but she continued. However, because I believe you won't drop out, I'm approving your application. I'm not giving you my name, 
so there's no need for any more letters or calls to this department. Do you understand? Yes, I, I do, I mumbled. Thank you. You don't know what this means to me. I think I do, she said, and with a hushed, Congratulations, don't let me down. There was a click. She was gone, and my life had changed forever. Respecting her wishes, I never tried to discover the identity of the stranger who went out on a limb to give a young man of little means an opportunity to better himself and maybe do some good in the world. Why did she help me? Perhaps my perseverance had paid off, and maybe that prayer did no harm either. One thing I am certain of, I said to Liam the day I explained about my phone box, is that an angel answered my call that day. And we stood looking at the kiosk, which was now transformed into something less ordinary for him too. Which is why, years later, he felt its passing had to be acknowledged. In these trying times, the opportunity to worship in the traditional way has been considerably curtailed. But you don't need to be in an elaborate edifice to commune with the Spirit. Any structure will do, even an iconic red telephone box. Indeed, it may be better suited than most for the purpose, for if ever there was a man who knew about places of worship, it was its designer, Sir Giles Gilbert Scott. He was also the architect responsible for the construction of many chapels, churches and cathedrals, including Liverpool's Anglican Cathedral. Is it too fanciful then to suggest that the spirit imbued in those hallowed buildings is no less present in his humble telephone box? Oh, one more thing. Did I let my anonymous benefactor down by dropping out? I did not. It wasn't until almost 40 years after that fateful call that my career in education drew to a close. In that time, it's been my privilege to have taught several generations of young people, always inspired by my faith in the transformative power of education. I can still recall the weather in Moscow that weekend in late April 1986. It was mild and sunny, with clear blue skies signalling the end of the long Russian winter. I was in the final months of a four-year posting as First Secretary at the Irish Embassy on Gorokolsky Periulok. We were looking forward to the International Labour Day holiday the following Thursday, May 1st. This was a key date in the Soviet calendar, when the leadership gathered on top of Lenin's mausoleum in Red Square for the familiar mass-orchestrated show of workers' solidarity. A year previously, the Politburo had elected the reform-minded Mikhail Gorbachev as General Secretary of the Communist Party, but the Cold War was still the determining context in East-West relations. 
Despite Gorbachev's embrace of perestroika and glasnost, the Soviet Union remained a totalitarian behemoth with a huge nuclear arsenal. Together with Ronald Reagan's America, it was locked in a shared strategic belief in collective nuclear annihilation. The terrifyingly apt acronym was MAD, Mutually Assured Destruction. Shortly after 1am on Saturday the 26th of April, an explosion in reactor number 4 at the nuclear power plant in Chernobyl, less than 100 kilometres north of Kiev, capital of the Ukraine, precipitated a catastrophic radiation leak. It was, however, the following Monday, the 28th of April, before word of the explosion in Chernobyl filtered out, and several days later before the full extent of the disaster became clear. In the early hours of Monday, a Swedish nuclear power plant in Forsmark on Sweden's east coast logged a spike in radiation. It quickly became clear that the leak was not from the Swedish plant. All the indications were that the radioactive particles were specific to Soviet power plants. The Swedish government contacted the Soviet authorities and Monday night's news bulletin carried the first reluctant public acknowledgement of the catastrophe in Chernobyl. Reading from a statement by the Council of Ministers, the newsreader spoke soothingly of an accident at the Chernobyl atomic power station, but reassured listeners that the consequences of the accident were being taken care of. She concluded, Help has been given to the victims. A government commission has been set up. Moscow's diplomatic community was accustomed to these opaque official announcements. Few paid heed to them. The sun was shining, winter was over, and a long holiday weekend awaited. It was Wednesday morning before the first intimations of the disaster reached the embassy. We had just opened when a call came through on a bad line from Dublin. In 1986, phone calls from home were rare. It was the news desk of the Irish press in Borough Quay. ABC News in America is carrying a report of a nuclear explosion in the Soviet Union. Do you know anything about it? What steps are you taking to safeguard the Irish community? My heart stopped. Could the unthinkable have happened? A nuclear war broken out overnight? This is a, <coughs> this is a terrible line, I told the caller. I can't hear a word. I'll call you back. Our ambassador, the late Thigo Sullivan, was on leave and not due back until after the May holiday. Thigo was one of the best, agreeable, good-humoured and wise. The first thing he'd do was establish the facts. In short order, I called the American, German and British embassies. There was no point in contacting the Soviet foreign ministry. By mid-morning, I had some sense of what had happened. The Americans had satellite images of the explosion at Chernobyl showing a far bigger blast than the accident referred to in the bland Soviet news bulletins. They also had reports that the Ukrainian town closest to Chernobyl, Pripyat, was being evacuated. Someone in the German embassy had been to the Moscow train station serving trains from Kiev, Kievsky station, and seen hundreds of frightened passengers. All the Nordic countries were registering alarmingly high radiation levels, and were certain that it was being carried on the prevailing northwesterly winds from the Soviet Union. It was clear that something serious had happened, and that the Soviets were determined to play it down. But at least I could reassure Ivy House, the Irish press, and our small resident Irish community that it wasn't nuclear war. 
That year's May Day celebrations went ahead as normal across the Soviet Union. Smiling young women in Ukrainian national costumes led the parade in Kiev, but secretly party officials who knew the extent of the radiation leak from nearby Chernobyl had evacuated their children and family members. Ambassador O'Sullivan returned from Ireland the following week, bringing with him a Geiger counter supplied by the Department of Defence. I remember both of us standing on the flat roof of the embassy, trying, with little success, to interpret the strange, sinister, clicking sounds. I don't suppose we'll be having many high-level visitors this year, remarked Thaig dryly. Over the weeks that followed, we developed a protective veil of dark humour to help us cope with the consequences of what was the world's worst nuclear disaster. A major concern for those of us with young children was whether it was safe to eat the spring vegetables and fruit on sale in Moscow street markets. We joked about Chernobyl lettuce and radioactive radishes. Looking back now, over 30 years later, I don't find it so funny. 70% of the radioactive fallout landed in Belarus, Ukraine and Western Russia, leaving a legacy of contamination and ill health that will last for generations. Ireland responded with generosity and compassion, as evidenced by the commitment of A.D. Roach, Ali Hewson and the Chernobyl Children's International. I left Moscow that September, bringing with me the Geiger counter. Thaigo Sullivan went on to serve as Ireland's ambassador to France. He died in 1999. Mikhail Gorbachev, the eighth and last leader of the Soviet Union, set out to reform a faltering autocracy but the failed cover-up of the Chernobyl disaster led inevitably to its collapse. can't run, but I can walk much faster than this can't run, but I can't run, but I can walk much faster than this can't run, but When we moved into the new house, the walls were bare. We took up brushes and paint and rushed to stay a step ahead of the tilers. Those were momentous days for all of us. Divorce, poverty and homelessness were not in the original script I'd written for my life and yet they'd made it into the final cut. The choosing of paint and tiles seemed unimportant and we delegated some of the decisions to my daughters who, having casually selected the colours, never gave the arrangement a further thought. They are now young women studying in the south and west of the country. For years I'd observed the red mosaic on the bathroom floor It almost matched the shower tiles, that almost matched the walls, that almost matched the rug and towels. Some weeks ago, ignoring my husband's pleas about the virtues of white simplicity, I bought a can of light grey paint, something to bring everything together. Roller in hand, I began my task and immediately a memory bubbled up from that great storehouse of the mind. I was 13 years old again in my grandmother's kitchen in Michael Street, Kilkenny, painting the first wall I'd ever painted. Even at this remove, I can still feel the excitement of that day. Imagine, someone trusting me in all my clumsiness with a paint-laden brush. 
As my grandmother moved furniture, I jumped on a chair and slathered everything with enthusiasm. That evening, my grandmother applied the leftover paint to my grubby grey plimsolls. Days later, my mother would complain about the trail of white flakes scattered about her house, but for now. My grandmother and I shared a silent satisfaction as we admired the newly gleaming footwear. I've worn the same painting clothes for years. The colours of every place I've called home are recorded in splatters on my favourite pair of jeans. Dark blue, yellow, red. The stories of places lived in, places cared for. Unbeknownst to anyone, I've been praying over paint for years. For health, happiness and healing to all who enter the house. I suppose it's in that Irish tradition which mixes the pagan and the Christian without any sense of dissonance. I remember being perplexed after I left home that my mother had put a new bed in my old room, changed the wallpaper, even the carpet. In all the years I'd been there, how I would have loved a newly decorated room. Why would she have done all this work when I wasn't going to be there to enjoy it? My self-absorption knew no bounds. I now see that she was rebuilding her ransacked nest. She probably felt then, as I do now, that some monster had swooped in and removed the child who once slept in that room. The time of that childhood had come to an end. I'd left for England and was never to live in my parents' house again. Before the Covid restrictions began, our girls returned from Cork and Galway most weekends and during holidays, so the transition had been relatively easy. And, unlike the sporadic communication I afforded my parents, Kate and Marin are regularly on the phone to us. Even so, the task of letting go has presented itself to me sooner than expected, and it behoves me to greet it like a guest. And am I not always meeting this guest in some form or another? The little girls I had are gone. The child I was myself is grown. My much-loved grandmother is no longer with us. Twin babies are getting ready to join the family. The movement of time changes us moment by moment, but so gradually we can be forgiven for believing in the illusion of permanence. And so, to prepare for this turning of the tide, the small task of painting a room is easier than the greater task of waving farewell to my children and to childhood. From the start they could see I hadn't a clue and I could see that those boys would try me sorely. It was my first teaching job. They were a mix of farm and town boys. Some of them came on the bus each morning and some were often late, wandering in as if they were still only waking up. A handful of them were bright-eyed and thin, like monkeys who found it hard to sit still. 
I remember them pouring into my classroom like a bunch of wild cowboys, whooping and hollering, hurling bags across the desks to a chorus of, Well, miss, and how are you, miss? They were a ramshackle bunch of misfits, all poor students, many of them hardly able to read, and yet each one as gifted and as clever as you'd ever want a boy to be. They were in second year, known throughout the school as 2D and viewed by one and all as hopeless cases. Of course they loved Mitching School, especially on Mart days when they could stand at corners and smoke, chat and spit like grown-up men. They loved action films, bad language, rude gestures, double entendres and free classes. It goes without saying that they hated school, but most especially they hated Irish. Ah, miss, they'd moan when I gave them homework. I spent days on the Imshur Kata, hoping they'd respond to the simplicity of speaking in one tense, and especially in the past tense. I tried to incite them to tell me what had happened to them. And I'd get them to repeat lines such as Runme on Doris and Chahme on Leroyd. In between, they'd continue their whispered talk about Rambo and Arnold Schwarzenegger and whatever other programme they'd seen on television the night before. I taught them the Irish version of that lilting song, The Whistling Gypsy, and discovered that they especially loved the chorus, which they corrupted joyously to suit their own designs. Rhyming do with a rude alternative, corrupting the line entirely. And with each chorus they sang that with gusto and abandon, laughing and cheering themselves on, stamping and banging on the tables when we did a run-through for a recording that I was making. And for a while, when I played back the tape, you could hear a pin drop as they listened to themselves in wonderment. It was a moment of discovery for me too, as I realised that they were interested in knowing about themselves, in being shown versions of themselves. And day after day, they'd troop in and look up at me as if I was going to do a magic trick. A vochli togagiamach vor lauer, I'd say knowing I was a kind of commander-in-chief, that my job was to maintain order and to rein in the troops when a skirmish broke out along the battlefront that was my classroom. They loved looking at wounds, at gouging their names into the desks and onto their bags, and they loved fighting and firing chalk at each other. One Friday afternoon, when it was clear they only wanted to be away out the door, only looking for an excuse to shout, jump out of their seats, tell a joke and run around the room, I brought two of them up to act out a make-believe exchange between a Garda and a cyclist with no lights. The seated boys showed no mercy as they egged on the two at the top of the class. They tried their best with the dialogue, blushing and stumbling over the words. But then someone threw a pencil at the blackboard and the heckling and stomping gathered apace. I stormed up from the back of the classroom to try and restore order. The class was at its most frenzied. I looked about me wildly, wishing I could be beamed up. And to my horror, 
I noticed one of the school's caretakers peering in through the door's glass panel. With his raised eyebrows and obvious shock, it was clear he disapproved of our goings-on. The day the Kigara came, they did their best, whispering to each other to shut up and punching any neighbour who spoke out of turn, their loyalty to me never in question. Today, I miss those gentle boys of Tipperary, and I feel great regard for them. I hope they are still laughing and sparring. I hope they have work, and I hope that on occasion they fill their lungs and sing out a song like the whistling gypsy on Spalpin Fánach, complete with their own body adaptation of the chorus. Gypsy rover came over the hill Down through the valley so shady He whistled and he sang till the green woods rang And he won the heart of a lady The inscription on the greeting card reads The average person needs 300 hugs each month to remain healthy happy and secure. And inside, in my friend's handwriting, good luck with that, Jerry. Stay safe. Good luck indeed. 300 hugs a month. Not a hope in hell. Three hugs a week in this climate and you're doing well. And that's assuming you're lucky enough to live with your loved ones. And then I remembered giving and getting Almost 30 hugs in the space of one hour all of nine years ago. It was a hug fest to remember. A hug fest like no other I've ever known. And it happened in my hometown of Kilkenny, outside Kilkenny Castle, during lunchtime. During that hour, I found myself hugging actors, artists, curators, set designers, theatre managers, poets and surprisingly enough, two local politicians. Both prominent TDs, as it happened, one a minister. And I must make it clear that I hugged both politicians with full knowledge and full consent and under no duress whatsoever. No one had a gun to my head or a knife to my back, although I feel sure the politicians were watching their backs, as all politicians do, as the hugs came fast and furious from all directions. Hugging the politicians was, I must confess, challenging. Not because of opposing political ideologies, but because one of them was very tall. Much, much taller than me. I really could have done with a stepladder to hug him properly. There being no stepladder in situ, however... I found myself wrapping my arms around his lower back, that part of his back nearer his rear than his shoulder. Not quite the hug he was expecting and not quite the hug I had intended giving. But we got through it. So, what had gotten into us all that we were hugging each other? Had we lost the run of ourselves? We had not. 
we were hugging for the arts. Indeed, some were making an art of the hugging, as one would expect from folks from local theatre groups such as Barnstorm Theatre Company, Barn Owl Players, Devious Theatre, Young Filmmakers and the Watergate Theatre. As the invite from Kilkenny's arts office read, Embrace the arts and the artists and show your support for the campaign for continued investment in the arts. And I remember another hugging episode from way back. No hug fest this, but a hug famine, so to speak. The poet, Brendan Kennelly, was giving a talk, peppered of course with poems, anecdotes and stories, in the New Park Hotel in Kilkenny. The hall was packed to capacity and there were quite a number of Leaving Cert students present as Brendan's poems were on the curriculum. Eloquent, loquacious and convivial as ever, he held us spellbound. He truly had us in the palm of his hand. So much so that when he finished, he calmly asked us all to stand and hug the person next to us. I duly stood up, but as those to my left and right were already hugging, I turned around, hoping to find someone to hug, only to be confronted by a row of stony-faced Leaving Cert students. Sitting with arms folded, these young men weren't going to hug anyone. And so I found myself standing to attention and feeling a little foolish and embarrassed. And then I heard her. I'll give you a hug. She was no more than 18. Another Leaving Cert student, two rows back, who, after a little manoeuvring of seats, came forward and gave me a swift, redeeming hug. Fast forward to 2012 and the lunchtime hug fest outside Kilkenny Castle, where I embraced artists, actors, poets and politicians and availed of the offer from our arts office of a cuddle and a hug. And by am I glad I did, because for sure we may never know the likes of it again. Housework. By habit, I fold your things away, freshly laundered and neat as a pin. My inconsequential start to the day is really a love token, I should say. After all this time, between one thing and another, the raked fire and clearing breakfast, to the endless news of crisis lurking around every corner. Oh, I remember, I remember. Our little flat like a shoebox. Not hitting the streets until they were well and truly aired. As when summer came along, 
grey canal banks full on. Brightness of the brightness and the boys who had plunged into the tumultuous river. Oh, I remember. I remember. On this morning's programme, we heard Granted One Phone Call by Peter Trant, Chernobyl by Joe Hayes, Painting Farewell to Childhood by Angela Kyo, Teaching 2D by Catherine Foley, Hugfest by Jerry Moran, and Housework by Gerald Daw. The music was Telephone and Rubber Band by Penguin Cafe Orchestra, Can't Run But by Paul Simon, Waltz Number no. 3 in G-sharp minor by Brahms, played by Antti Sirela, The Whistling Gypsy by the Clancy Brothers, and Unchained Melody by the Righteous Brothers. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Carolyn Dempsey, and the producer is Sarah Binchy. You can find out more from this and other RTE arts and culture programmes at rte.ie forward slash culture. RTE Radio 1 You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.